So hello and welcome. My name is Steve Pugh and on Mondays I do something called a growth strategy podcast where I try and introduce you to really interesting people that can help your business or career. So I was first introduced to Anthony about a month ago. He kindly came up to Newcastle on a Saturday, I might add, to give a talk about seed legals and what they do. And actually Patricia that gave his intro, I sat and I think it was about a two hour event. It was fabulous, really great guy. And then actually it wasn't long afterwards, I thought, I need to get this guy in the podcast. He's got such an incredible story to tell. But also with the so much change that's going on in the world at the moment, with the banking uh, sector, the finance sector, you have startups who might be less confident now than they were about where's their money going to come from or people are going to be more risk averse. That in theory, this could be the perfect interview at the perfect time. So Anthony, I will always let introduce in his own words, but if you join us for the next 40 minutes or so, um, I know it'll be a really great conversation as well. And if you want to catch up afterwards, we do all of this on YouTube, on the Robin Fambia YouTube channel, and you'll be able to find it on socials as well. So there we go. People can now see you and hear you. All right. So, Steve, thank you so much for the kind intro. Hello, everyone. I'm Anthony Rose. I'm founder and CEO at Seed Legals. Once upon a time, I used to head up BBC iPlayer. That seems like a lifetime ago now. Um, then after the BBC, I built a startup, sold it, built another startup, sold it, invested in a couple, got tired of paying lawyers, met my co-founder, Laura, genius XVC and serial angel investor, started Seed Legals in late 2016, and we now... Uh, 150 people, right. um, about one in three of all for early stage funding rounds in the UK is now done on seed legals. And as part of that, I talk to a lot of founders. I see a lot of pitch decks and I see lots of founders on their journey. Some go better than others. And I'm delighted to share my experiences so that uh, you can get there faster. So that's the intro. It feels like you've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny the because art when... of the pitch, the art of the pitch, and the art of the presentation is one of the key things founders need to master. And we can go through my baptism of fire on that if we get to it. No, it sounds brilliant. And what's quite funny, so I did a school's careers day on Friday. So this is to people age fourteen to eighteen, just about general stuff. But for me, it was about startups. And it's funny because when you say the same thing 200 times, you do get to tweak and change and change. And it's, you, but you can tell as someone that's when someone's really well rehearsed, if that makes sense. So I, I respect the hustle and grind. And this is one of my big things is that when I go through my own career, anyone that you can tell has done the miles, has done the reps, has been there and done it. I personally have a lot of respect for that you're always going to get the odd person that gets rich quick and has one idea that flies at 17. But actually, it's the things like people, when people practice pitching and practice stuff, I have massive kind of respect for. Um, so I was going to say, would you like to introduce yourself? But you've kind of already smashed that one, which is cool. Is it correct that you grew up in South Africa? Yep, I'm from Cape Town, sunny Cape Town and always questing for the sun in London. But but yes. Because one of the other presenters on our channel, Ashley's also South African. And what I always find funny is, that, I don't know about you, but as I've gone through my life, you seem to, so we do a lot of work in Nigeria as well, where Tony, who's another presenter on the channel, is Nigerian. But you seem to just gravitate to different people from different parts of the world, and they seem to kind of come together. And same, I know a guy called Craig that runs Google in the UK and Europe, Craig Fenton. And he says the same about people from New Zealand, is that they all seem to just coalesce together um so what were you like at school 
I was probably the reclusive person. You were like, way, this is like the way back machine. I was probably more the reclusive person at school, I must say. So when I was a kid, I was into computers at a very early age before computers were a thing. Like I had like the world's first computers pre-Apple. I built my own computer. Um, And actually for me, I like nothing more than if this is good or bad than to head home as soon as possible after school and get back to designing electronics. So when I was at school, I had my own electronics business and built circuit boards, which I sold to Apple in in, in South Africa, um, and data loggers that would go down mines and and the works. So I guess I was an entrepreneur before, you know, startups were a thing, really. This was quite a few years ago. What age was this? I was uh, 16 or so, um, maybe even 15. This was like in the 1980s, so... uh, Way, way back. So, I mean, startups, there was no such thing as, you know, fundraising for startups back then. There was no government tax incentives. I mean, it was South Africa. So I think one of the interesting things is I learned quite quickly that you had to run it as a proper business. In other words, you have to make enough money to cover your expenses because no one's just going to give you 500,000 pounds. And I think that's been a very good discipline since then. Uh, in 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 terms of running seed legals, as you know, cash flow break even, sometimes up, sometimes down. But rather than you're going to raise lots of money and then hemorrhage yep. lots of money, and then when times are bad and fundraising is difficult, then the company has really hard times. Can I ask? Do you think that's a generational thing? So I was, I'm a little bit younger than you. So I was born in '83, but it's almost where. So I'm still in the millennial um, generation, but it was almost where. For, a lot of my life, you know, and especially I grew up in a city called Liverpool, but it was a fairly blue collar working class town. But it was almost where you had to pay your own way, feed your own, you know, uh, feast, I guess. And it was that balance of where do you feel that because in the past 10, 12 years where interest rates and things have been so low, that we, we have a whole generation now of people are 10 to 25 or so that grew up when entrepreneurship was cool and start, startups were cool. Yeah, but almost ab- the ab- approach was get an idea, fundraise, then do it as opposed to maybe a few years ago, it would have been make it work, make some money, then grow it. Does that make sense? It's almost, you know, one yeah, is... Yeah, no, absolutely. And I love the great, really, democratization. Some might argue it's not quite democratization. It's moving the, the, the pieces around, but the, the board is still stacked. But I think it's very much a democratization. And that's very much my purpose and mission, both personally and at Seed Legals, to allow people with ideas... Uh, you know, whether the, whatever race, gender, and so on, to be able to fulfill mm-hmm. those and, and build it. And once upon a time, you know, Britain was classist. If your father worked at the mill, you'd work at the mill, and there was very little chance to break out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it became easier, potentially. The stigma was removed, but it was harder logistically. You couldn't borrow money from the bank until you had money. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the rise of uh, equity fundraising and then crowdfunding and now angel investment, which means that it is possible and without huge amounts of difficulty that if you have an idea and you can sell the concept and you, you know, can express yourself that really everyone is now potentially potentially a founder or creator and and welcome to the new creator economy. But it does leave to a different problem, which is I I saw some survey that said something like 27% of people leaving school said they want to do, you know, do a startup or be a founder. And uh, and that's up from 2% Mm -hmm. a decade ago. 
So the question is, and I see lots of founders, are 27% of people really founder material? So what does founder material be? And this is not to deny anyone the innate right to go off and be a founder, but, you know, when I think as a founder, key attribute is you love you have to love making decisions mm -hmm. and weighing up risk rewards. And if you don't want to make decisions or don't want to take risks, it's not the life for you. And you also, once you have an idea, you have to do everything you can to make it work. So relying on the handouts of others or uh, going, I, I can't deal with this. Can someone else own it? are just not an option, right? So you've got investors to give you money, you've got people to follow you on your mission, and now you can't get up in the morning and go, it's kind of hard. I'd like to just, can I give my baby mm. back again, please? I'm bored, is not an option. So uh, yes, I think it's it's really important that as someone uh, watching or listening to this, you look within, if you're thinking, should I give up my day job and become a founder? Of course, there is the possibility, and I love to make it super easy for you. You have to still find investment, mm -hmm. persuade people to invest, but the tools legally to do that are so much easier these days. But the question is, is that going to fit your mentality mm -hmm. or are you going to find it, uh, you know, a constant frustration? And I look, for example, at myself when there are things like Brexit or Ukraine war or COVID, it's not too, like, gleefully say it's an opportunity because mm -hmm. there are problems for many people but you st your starting point is thinking the world has changed it's not that you know twitter lights up with people uh frustrated with the uncertainty in fact uncertainty if you thrive on it mm -hmm. cut out for being a founder anyway <laughs> end soliloquy on being a founder but what i find fascinating and it's part of the reason why i love to ask people about their backstory is because often the seeds were sown or are sown at a young age and it's you can kind of you know tease out what people are like and you can see the things that can go into roots and really kind of grow on and then likewise again there's a lot of people where some people just don't want to fit into someone else's system they've always got the itch to scratch and they want to go out on their own and the one thing that i always think it's almost the you can have a great idea but it's that desire when things aren't going well and you're not making as much traction as you hoped just keep going because you inherently love the thing you love the problem that you're trying to solve that actually you probably will have more tough days than good ones because the irony is i don't know about you but almost as soon as you have the good blip you instantly reset to then just accept it and move on it's almost just what's next what's next and i think that is almost part of the fun for me of entrepreneurship is because I don't know where the next 30 years are going to go. But I'm actually very excited that probably for the next 10, not much will happen, then it'll, but it's that compounding well, interest. Hopefully, just... hopefully a bit sooner than 10, more like two. You know, you have to build something, but, but 10 years is a long time. The median age for company exits is sort of five to seven years. So you, okay. you, if you're still sort of on the learning thing 10 years in, uh, you, you, you might have wanted to see, could you get there faster? But there's nothing wrong with that, right? And also remember that, you know, companies are not just built to flip. they yes. growing mm -hmm. businesses. Once upon a time, people built a cheese shop and it would be in the family eight generations later. These days, you might build businesses to sell a lot faster than that in in a few years. But uh, we may talk about, you know, build to keep or build to sell if we get there. Yeah, I've got you. I've got you. So what I would normally do is ask people's, you know, about their careers and how they built up. But yours is, there's like you're obviously a serial entrepreneur. There's so much really cool stuff to kind of go at. The almost 
how would you summarize your career journey from kind of school selling data boards and things at 16 what happened next well it's quite a rollicking yarn so um i was living in south africa at the time i had my own one person electronics company which was actually quite profitable in the just build a business sell things use the money to buy parts and i spent the evening soldering things i had a robot machine for making circuit boards and a big conveyor thing for soldering them in in my study at, at home, not in the bedroom, but I've died of lead poisoning um, in, in the study. And then it was time to move from South Africa. So we moved to Australia and I began building that again. And then one day a mutual friend said, the person who runs Sega, the video games uh, company in Australia, doesn't just want to sell other people's games. He wants to build something himself. Mm. So he's looking for a CTO. And I thought, what do I know about real-time 3D and software? Well, let's give it a go. So I uh, became CTO at the company. We built a big team, did real-time 3D graphics. I've got a whole lot of patents on it. And then uh, the uh, dot-com crash arrived in the late 90s, and we had to reinvent our business, and we needed distribution. So we connected with Kazar, the music file-sharing company, for those old enough to remember it. And we had our technology bundled with Kazar. And then the businesses merged, and we became part of Kazar. Then we got sued by the music companies. And then we settled, and I bought, built a licensed music store in the days before iTunes. Mm-hmm. And then one day the BBC called and said, how would you like to join the BBC? And I was living in sunny Sydney and I went, the BBC, where are the stock options? But I was persuaded and they were looking for someone with media knowledge and having mm-hmm. been with Kazar and wake up like 16 million downloads in a week. Mm-hmm. So it was all about building a product that consumers love. And that's what I relish doing. Um, moved to London, headed up iPlayer. But eventually it was time to move on back to startup days and then build Zbox, uh, which was a social app around TV, and then built six tribes and invested in a few. So I guess my career has been, you know, solo company and then three disruptive spaces, which I think is fascinating. The first is music, which is moving from physical CDs Mm -hmm. to online. And the music company is not wanting to change until they were forced to change. And then in video, from moving from watch it on your telly through to watching it on your phone whenever you want. But the broadcasters change to some extent, but not enough. And now we see the broadcasters are having their lunch eaten by, mm-hmm. at first it was the YouTubes and then the Snaps and Facebook video and, and now TikTok and so mm-hmm. on, because things, everything is a constant reinvention. And then now it's disruption in the legal field but in every case the goal isn't i mean some people wake up obsessed with changing the world or disrupting the natural order of things or the existing order of things but i mean it's it's laudable but i don't personally see that as a great goal Mm -hmm. your goal is just to build something that your customers will want Mm -hmm. it might just be utility don't get ahead of yourself you know the faster way to do x or i want to watch top gear whenever i want not at nine o'clock only on a sunday night or i want to do an investor meets me and i just want to send them a document now on a rainy sunday not wait and Mm -hmm. phone a lawyer next week so you know, find a utility problem that people are looking to solve, solve it in a better way, and then build a business on that. Can I ask, what is it that drives you? Because everything you've just said, it's almost where 
I'm guessing there's a desire to problem solve and almost have an impact or are you one of these people where you seek out you know do you, do you I was gonna say do you lose interest in things quickly but do you see a problem and think I could solve that I think there are two interesting parts to the question. Number one is, of course, what what's in common with you know music, video, legal, electronics, and so on. Um, and I think what's what's in common is uh, what I love to do is build cool stuff. Yeah. I like to start with a problem and not know at all how to get there. It's a little bit like being dropped on the desert island and you know that you have to build a hut or the tigers will eat you and you will die without water and you kind of that problem to solve and you have no idea how to get to the solution, but I actually really like that. And all, everything else in a startup is like stuff you have to do that, that lets you do that. And to some extent, it doesn't matter what the problem space is, whether it's a legal or, or video or audio, you're still starting with an idea and then mm -hmm. you need to build it, build the team, get investment and all the things around it. And, and that's really the, the, the piece that I really enjoy. Because I think with one of the things that you seem to have done incredibly well, is you've managed to catch the wave on lots of technology rises. So I remember when I, so I started university in 2002. And at the time I was still buying CDs. I go to HMV, buy the disc. And then I remember there was various different options, but there was a line wire was one and there was lots of, and then there was a big thing about when you search for Madonna or whatever music taste that you look for, but then half of them would be viruses. And then you'd be worried about, is, is this illegal? Is it? And it was just, but there was this big sea change of just change going on. And then almost again with iPlayer, it sounds silly, but I grew up in the generation of Friends, you know, the TV show. And it absolutely blew my mind that at some point you could go on and choose which episode and series. I was like, that's impossible. How? But, and then again, the, the growth in the startup legal world that in the past five to 10 years you know we've seen the challenger banks come in that have really disrupted that space and again what you guys do at legal it's almost where i think the world goes through reinvention every so often anyway but you seem to have caught the wave perfectly on quite a few if that makes sense i'd, I'd like to think that i mean <laughs> i skipped the sorry that's okay <laughs> the Bless you. Bitcoin blockchain wave. And I don't know if I was, uh, I was late to the party or I just didn't understand it. But I think, you know, one of the key things is you like to think that all the things you do are scientifically planned. I'm going to do X and Y. Actually, it turns out a lot of it is fortune, opportunism and luck. And so, you know, why am I in legal tech? Well, it's because I met my co-founder, Laurent, at a party where he's an ex-VC and he was saying this problem space and I was looking for the next thing to do. And you don't, you know, sometimes you, you, you read all this VC advice and funding advice on Twitter and it's like, find something you love and do it. Well, it's very rare that you start off loving, yeah. you know, insurance technology or legal technology or manufacturing technology. You don't. You start by finding an interesting problem that uh, you're potentially good at. And then you learn, and not, not, not learn as in forced to learn, but you begin mm -hmm. to love it. So on C-Legals. Contract automation is not something you kind of fall in love with. What you do fall in love with are thousands, tens of thousands of founders using what you've built mm -hmm. to change the way that they can run their business and just see how they, you know, are accelerated as a result and could never do the things without platforms like that. And that's the inspiring bit. The fact that there's a tech platform mm -hmm. is great. That's the necessary piece, but it's the outcome from that. That's the exciting piece. So I've, I could, 
attempt to pitch seed legals, but I can tell that you're someone that's done this 20,000 times before. But would you like to, or can you share the dream, share what you do, share what people can buy, and then we'll almost investigate a bit more? Is that okay? Sure. So, you know, once upon a time, if you want to do a contract, uh, particularly around fundraising or hiring people, you'd go to a law firm and you'd explain what they want and some number of pounds and days or weeks later, they'd create a document and then you'd send the document to the other party and the lawyers would talk to mm -hmm. And the whole thing was slow and painful. And the, my, the goal at Seed Legals is to change that. So Seed Legals is a platform and people primarily around fundraising. So the idea is, let's say you've got your startup and you want to raise investment. Well, the UK startup ecosystem is fueled by government tax incentives for angel investors. It's called SEIS, Seed Enterprise Investment Scheme, and the EIS scheme. And that means if someone invests personally, they can deduct some of their investment from their tax for this year or the last tax year. And in order to do that, you need to get set up and registered and so on. You can do that on Seed Legals. And then you might want to create a pitch page where you can share it on social and you can do that on Seed Legals. And then, of course, you need to know what fundraising is about and you need to work out how to value your company. So there's data and video on that. And then you'll find an investor and the investor would say, I'd like to invest something and you'll need a contract for that. So really it's the platform to enable you to know what you want and to execute it. And then later on, when you hire people, you can do the employment contracts and, and all the other things. So it's not just the paperwork, mm -hmm. it's the hopefully that cloud of things you need to go and build your business faster. No, I think it's very true and very needed, I think as well, because I'm married to a lawyer. So my wife is a partner in a law firm. So I inherently use her law firm when I do stuff, but there's always that element of trust where I reach out to a person. They're often busy, so they often don't reply for a little bit, but then you don't know what the price is gonna be. You don't quite sure what you're gonna get back. And there's always, it's it's never great, you know, it, but so I, I completely get how it works. And then is it a, paper play type service or is it a subscription that's that's right so there are two parts there's a subscription for all the little things that you need all mm -hmm. the time employment agreements mm -hmm. ndas and then it's a pay per big thing that you need sometimes like a funding round and, and so on no i i just i kind of well I, first hand i i get it for what we do but what you're always looking for is how where can you invest your time, effort and money to have a, a multiplier impact, which really helps? And I think one of the big things, especially with young people, but it's true of all ages, if you don't know what to do or where to go, that's a barrier, that's a blocker. So the potential to have a trusted source where, you know, a brand name that can almost solve everything, there's a, there's a real value in that, there's a real attraction in that, that often the unknowns could actually stop someone from trying to raise money because they don't know if, how big the legal fee is going to be or how it's going to work or, um, you know, the fact that you have standard documents and that kind of thing as well is is really kind of positive. Um, what's your I, dream for the business? I know you've been going for quite a few years now and you've done fabulous things and you're in multiple different countries now, but I just wondered for you, where's the, where do you want to be in five, 10 years time? 
Uh, well, that is an impossibly long time in internet land. I mean, we see the rise of AI now. We didn't even see it this time, but, but the beginning of the year. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the question is then what what uh, comes next? I can't gaze that far into the future. I mean, for, you know, the, the, the initial part now is to keep building things that our customers want, expand into other countries, uh, create a product for investors to make mm -hmm. it easy for you to find investors and investors to find companies. So, you know, anything else, I guess we'll talk again in a year or two's time. But I must admit, what, what you've almost done there is that the, we mentioned before about how there's been different sea changes in technology, because even when you went to Sega, I remember when they first launched 8-bit games, but, you know, that was a, a new thing because before that we used to have uh, an Amstrad computer where you would load games on tape and it would take half an hour to load a game and that moved but again so now uh, you know the launch of large uh, language models and AI has where do you think that will go realistically within the next few years because there's always the element of where where it could go but then often legislation will hold it back one might guess and it was just your own feeling on the chat gpt generation of where we could be in three yes. to five years so a, a few observations uh firstly i mean you know my twitter is literally 98 percent filled with people sharing chat gpt things and i've been impressing on my team that we should use it faster than i like that we are using it. But I do a Monday morning team stand-up uh, for the team on Zoom. Mm -hmm. So we're all, uh, you know, start the week. And I thought for fun last night, I've used ChatGPT to write my speech for today. So I said, you know, write a stirring two-minute speech telling about uh, sales performance, the excellent work by the support team and our recent product developments. And it came up with a, a little speech, which I posted actually on our Slack channel, just as a joke. This is what ChatGPT wrote, because it was on the one hand, tremendously impressive. On the other hand, seriously, meh. It was exactly the management speak that I would never use. It's like, yeah. So... Um, but but the whole chat GPT thing is almost, as I'm seeing more and more of it, people are, you know, posting endless amounts of stuff to show how clever it is. But what I'm wondering, actually, is it's almost saying how stupid we are, because all we are, are a bunch of tech that takes a database of stuff, repurposes it, and, and does exactly the same as the mm -hmm. chat GPT is doing. But I mean, jokes aside, the, the point is, it's an interesting quandary because when blockchain came out, mm -hmm. there were, you know, a school of thought going, it's going to change everything, but we just need to look for applications for it. And and largely, we just didn't find many applications mm -hmm. for it. It remains a triumph of desire over actual, whereas with chat GPT, will it turn out to be there are endless numbers of things it could do, but realistically, I'm still doing my own speech in the morning. My my sales team are still doing their own, their, their, their same emails. Mm -hmm. We're still doing exactly the same things, and we keep it as a fun side thing, or does it change everything? I think in this case, it's going to very much change a lot, probably not quite as much as people are looking for because it's a large language model. It's not something else, um, but it is uh, seriously impressive. And then the question is, how fast should you pivot your business yeah. to be using it? Do you drop everything and pivot on it? That would be a bit too soon. Do you ignore it? Well, you know, if you could 
get twice as much done in a day with mm -hmm. some AI assist. I think it'd be remiss of you to not uh, do that. So anyway, just the last piece on that is I've, you know, one of the things from talking to many founders, one of the things I love doing at Seed Legals is to uh, solve every problem in a scalable way. So I think, what would a law firm do? They would do the same thing again and again. I'm going to put unbounded CapEx to solve a problem, but make it a one-click for everyone after that. So every time somebody asks us a problem on our web chat, you know, my co-founders left or this is happening or whatever, my goal is the third time someone asks us a question, we'll mm -hmm. write an article, we'll do a video on it. Mm -hmm. And then you can have the, the system start suggesting it or my colleagues or maybe AI will suggest it. So we've written and I've written close to 500 articles mm -hmm. on all sorts of things around startup companies, what founders should do in fundraising the works. And I thought, why not pull that all into a chat GPT private model mm -hmm. and then have a chat bot that you can ask it anything. So basically I put myself out of business answering questions and my team out of business. Anyway, we, uh, took our first trial assets. We couldn't upload the whole model because we weren't there yet and the limitations. We did a small model and it was a, a great example where the chat GPT system came up. So then my team said, Anthony, please ask it your first question. So I asked it some question where I knew it had a particular technical answer and it came up with a beautifully written and completely wrong <laughs> answer. So I was greatly amused. That's the epitome of it, which means you can't let it loose on an unsuspecting world because instead of, you know, hitting us up on web chat and my team mm -hmm. will tell you a good answer to your problem, you'll have something that will tell you something that looks great and is a disastrously bad thing. So now we have to figure out how, how to let it loose in a way that is going to be sensible. But I think as a, an early steer, even if it halved your customer service inquiries, but the one thing that really get you know I've been excited by is that so I do a lot of video and I do a lot of online tutorials, but I only speak English. So we are in fifty-one countries now, and yes, a lot of people around the world want to learn English. Which they don't mind learning in English, learning business in English, because that's fine. But if we have a mission to help access you know five billion people, a lot of them don't speak English. But now with a lot of the different platforms, you can either create a virtual avatar of Anthony Rose or Steve Pugh. Yep. But also if for all of our videos, we have the transcript from what I've actually said. Yes, I would refine it, but then you can in theory feed that back in and have it in French and Hindi and Mandarin. And although at the moment it's still pretty clunky and you can tell it's not a real person because it's all of the the mannerisms and the things that just happen but I can see where it's going to go and one of the big things that I'm quite excited about which law firms I guarantee will be quite slow to pivot I just think they will be university is the same for me but it's that ability as you say to grow and scale in a way because you will make a punt an educated risk on something that will either hit and yeah or it won't as well I think a lot of people um still they're laggards they sit in the mass market waiting to see what everyone else has done but the truth is after that horse has bolted if people start to investigate new technology two years late it's already gone so i, I genuinely kind of respect and laud everything that you're doing actually it's quite exciting to to do that we thought about something similar to do with um, solving business problems because inherently for most business problems there is actually a structure for what you should do 
But the one thing that we found in a world of ChatGPT, people still want to ask a human. They know what the answer is, and ChatGPT can tell them what the answer should be, but they want to know, how did you solve that? Anthony, in your career when you had this, how, and that's the magic that I don't think we have yet, but we we will. Um, can I yes. pick your brain? By the, by, the, by the way, very briefly, I was in Singapore 10 days ago meeting with our Singapore uh, team, and uh, one of the startups in, in our building very nicely did a 3D model of me. I said, they, they've created this... 360 camera thing with 82 ultra hd cameras and this massive splash that like you're being transported in the matrix somewhere uh anyway i haven't yet seen this model but i was doing like the matrix pose and so um i i i've no idea actually i didn't check who owns the copyright on it but it may turn out it turns out there's an anthony on the internet like oh my god i've lost control of myself so uh, when you yeah. have deep fake technology you can see where, and this is at the moment, stuff that we know about. Obviously, there'll be a lot of military stuff that we don't know about. But fast forward 20 years, I'm excited to see where it's going to go. Part of me does worry. Um, so I'm based in the northeast of England. We have a lot of industry here. And it's that balance of where I think some companies will hit again with AI and do extremely well. You'll have people that don't and therefore go out of business because they quite literally just can't compete with stuff. And I think that'll be quite a painful transition for a while, you know, because it'll take a while for people to react and change. And in the same way that we don't have as many people at plough fields now as we did 100 years ago, people will find new jobs. But I can see turmoil ahead in some different ways. Um, can I ask your brains, uh, pick your brains almost about where you feel what's going on in finance at the moment and how that almost impacts the startup landscapes obviously we had silicon valley bank um kind of go under and they got saved in the uk by hsbc but then there's credit suisse and there's i watch a lot of bloomberg and it's that balance of where two three years ago it seemed like it wasn't mega difficult to raise investment if you had a good idea and a good business do you feel that the world has changed a bit are people a bit more cautious now than they were in the past um Great point. By the way, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, you know, we've got data on thousands of UK startups and uh, in the shareholders agreement, when you do a funding round on seed legals, you put your bank details so that the investors can send you their money. But by looking at the sort code, we can see what banks people use. And I can tell you on early stage UK startups, just 1.3% of companies use SVB. Starling is the most popular okay. by a long way. So, you know, the whole fuss about SVB was about a larger companies, mm -hmm. not smaller ones. And for the average, it's not to say it's it's uh, not significant. And I'm delighted the government worked full time over the weekend to get it sorted. It would have been very bad otherwise. But for your average startups, they go SV who? Mm -hmm. So, but there is a fundamental issue and there, there are. The fundamental issue is the cost of capital. So once upon a time, not that many years ago, your your money was earning 0% interest in the bank. So uh, because you're earning nothing in the bank, you could easily borrow money and you would want to, to get a return. So you would invest in startups, which have a risk. But now if the bank is, uh, you know, costing you 8%, mm -hmm. which means your money is doubling every nine years or the amount you owe is doubling every nine years. If you're investing in a startup, you want to uh, invest at a lower valuation so that it doesn't have to rise as much 
before you make a return. And you want to pick the ones that are more likely to succeed so that you reduce your risk. So the fundamental thing that's changed, in my view, is the cost of capital. It's more expensive to borrow and you would get more in interest. Therefore, you're going to take smaller and uh, less risky bets. So um, with that in mind, investors are changing their strategy. They're pushing valuations down and they're picking safer bets. And the safer bets are usually things like um, fintech as opposed to B2C businesses or social networks. So if you're a fintech uh, with a SaaS recurring revenue business model and all the jargon that's hot with investors, then probably not that much has changed. In fact, there might be more money moving to your area. You may have to raise at a lower valuation. But if you're a, a bit off-piste, then you may have a much harder time getting investment because you're competing mm -hmm. uh, with with much safer bets, potentially. Because this, for me, in some ways, goes back to what we said right at the start, where in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, if you ignored certain bubbles, you you had to build a proper business first does that make sense and it's almost where you know we, are there zombie companies out there that maybe you know borrowed money extremely cheaply they grew but not profitably and when that tap gets turned off could they be in trouble you know it's almost that, where, that, that that's exactly it and that's the other part that's changed which is and it becomes by the way a running joke with me and my business partner so you know, often having a co-founder is is very useful because you, you have different views on the same problem. Sometimes you're in sync and sometimes not. And, you know, over the years since we've been around, which is like seven years at Seed Legals, we joke, which is for me, I'm the, we should raise tons of money and like grow like crazy. And my business partner, who ironically is the investor, uh, serial angel investors, like don't do that. Do not be on the... Uh, the, the the treadmill of having to keep raising or you're out of business get to cash flow break even in other words you know not burning a huge mm -hmm. amount of money you don't have to aim to be profitable but not losing a huge amount so that you're not beholden to investors and during the boom times i go laurent i was right it's crazy we should have raised tons and then along came COVID and brexit and and then everything went south and then laurent goes see anthony i was right so but what has fundamentally changed is investors are looking for companies that uh, are cash flow break even slash profitable, not losing huge amounts because they know if uh, if they're investing and you need to then raise tons mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. at a lower valuation, they're going to be diluted. Yeah. And and so, you know, underpinned by the changes in the cost of capital, you now have big mood swings from investors. Um and then the question is, how long will it be until they corrected? I think one of the other side effects is that uh, because valuations are down, investors know that the companies often, not exclusively, but often fundraising now are the ones that are forced to fundraise okay. rather than the ones that can do it because they're awesome and want to. And, and of course, the ones who just want to and are really awesome will anyway, but the fact you fundraising and calling investors might mean that 
they are dictating the terms. Mm. And then the question is, can you hold out till, is it Q3, is it Q4, is it next year, is it next month? No one really knows, uh, you know, what the holding period is until it comes back again. But historically, everything is always a cycle. And so for mm -hmm. sure, the cycle will be back again. The question just is, how long? So if you were me or a startup founder and you could wait until next year to fundraise or whenever, would you or would you raise now? Because you never know what's going to happen, even though it's at a much lower valuation. Of, of course. So it's a great point. And the rule one with startups is procrastination is death. Okay. So, you know, you have a dream, you want to do something, you're either going to get on with doing it or you're not. And if you don't, uh, well, it depends if how passionate you are. But if one day you wake up and see someone else is going to do it or is doing it, will you be endlessly annoyed with yourself or will you go, meh, whatever? So, I mean, the fact is, if you are going to be, you know, if you think about in some number of years of development, I want to have a company that's worth 100 million pounds and do X or Y. Well, the question is, when does the clock start? If you're not starting now, it's just going to start later. And if you're not laser focused on growing it as efficiently as you can, then you're wasting everyone's time, really. So I think it's, it's you know, one of the key attributes as a founder is when there are uncertain times, you take mm -hmm. advantage of it. So you change your fundraising strategy. You pick something that's perhaps more investable. Mm -hmm. You look to raise smaller amounts and get there. Instead of hiring eight people on day one, hire four people or build something yourself or use no code mm -hmm. to get there. Instead of trying to do a funding round and raising 500,000 pounds, mm -hmm get on seed legals and use what's called a seed fast to raise small amounts ahead of a round. So you don't need to wait months trying to find all the investors to come together. You get a few investors. Mm -hmm. If you had 20,000 pounds now, you could get the prototype built. Or if you had 50,000, you could hire the developer. Mm -hmm. So it's all about changing your strategy working super hard to find investors and that's being completely shameless spreading on social friends customers whoever will listen what you're doing and you know why they should invest and and your pitch deck and business plan and telling them about mm -hmm. the sis tax savings so you know i i think that not uh, uh going ahead is not really the answer because the other thing is you always think that something will be better, but guess what? You know, when fundraising uh, valuations are increasing again, all that's going to happen is all the companies who are much further developed that didn't fundraise mm -hmm. will be right at the front of the queue. And you'll realize now is a lousy time for you. So there's always a lousy time. Maybe the, maybe the corollaries, things will always be worse. This is <laughs> as good as it's ever going to get. There goes my optimism award. No, okay, I, yes. I love it. I love it. I am very conscious of your time, Anthony. Uh, I know how busy you are and how many things and wheels and things that you spin. I have two questions that I kind of finish on, if that's okay. Sure. Um, would you be happy to share what's the best piece of advice you've ever had? Um, Apart from fundraise now on CE Legals, is the. Yeah, no, no. I, well, in, in fundraising space, I think it's probably uh, don't raise a huge amount because it's you're always seduced by those TechCrunch articles of companies raising large amounts. And it always seems that it's a, a mark of respect that you've raised more, but actually raising less 
uh, is often better because you don't spend it on building lots of things that you don't need later. Mm -hmm. So you realize maybe that uh, fundraising is the failure to not have to fundraise. If you could build everything without having to raise, that would be better. You raise because you needed the money. So uh, I think in previous startups, I, I, I raised successfully very large amounts, but I might have been better off to raise smaller amounts mm -hmm. and operate more efficiently. No, it's good. It's good. And then last but not least, if you were to give advice to your younger self, and this could be yourself at 16 with a soldering board, making circuit boards and selling them, hustling away, or the iPlayer days, maybe after you left that or that first dinner party where you met your business partner, if you were to give advice to your younger self, what would it be? You know, I, I, I saw that in the, uh, in, in the podcast and I, plan to have an answer for it and i didn't have an answer you know i i don't uh offhand of like an answer of like don't drink the green stuff or whatever <laughs> um i i think life is hard to have undone one thing without undoing all other things because you might look back and say you know had i not been with Kazar, then I wouldn't have had embroiled in endless amounts of, you know, their legal drama or something. But if it hadn't been that, it wouldn't have led to the next thing and the next thing. And if I hadn't met that investor, it wouldn't have met my mm -hmm. co-founder now. So I think it's very hard to say, to just take this history and remove one thing from history uh, to, to redo it. So unfortunately, of all the things you've asked, maybe the most significant one, I don't have an answer on it. <laughs> But I think what's quite funny is that the, for my career and a lot of people I speak to, there's a term squiggly careers, but it's almost where all of those pivots and changes throughout your entire life have built the Anthony, Ro Anthony Rose as of now. Same with me. So that almost created the magic. It's the chaos which has got you to this point. Uh, but no, I respect the answer. I think it's really good. And I genuinely, I think it's brilliant what you guys are doing and the way that you support the community. I was really impressed. And this is maybe a small thing, but the fact that you travelled from London to Newcastle on a Saturday when you didn't have to to come and speak to a room of 30, 40 people, it shows that you really care about what you do. And for me, that really kind of comes across when you speak. And I think people will buy into that. that often when you work with a company or you trust your money somewhere, you often look at the character of the people and are they passionate about what they talk to and, you know, what they do. And I think that comes across really well and actually you've managed to drop in seed legals more than any guest of all time just in a minute well 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 thank you and by the way i mean i uh you know I, i'm i'm not that young and i personally you would love to give back to the community and share things so you know it's with pleasure london is uh you know fundraising is very london centric so to get out of town and uh you know, uh, work with uh, founders elsewhere to tap into that space. Mm -hmm. I uh, enjoy uh, very much doing. Cool. Well, I genuinely appreciate your time. Have a wonderful rest of your Monday. Um, I will stay in touch on the socials. And when this gets clipped up, I'll tag you in some of the posts as well. All no, right. Cool. Well, have a great rest of your day. And thank you for your time. Thank you. All right. See you. Bye-bye.